But this morning we're in a series called the Sermon on the Mount. And today's sermon, uh, Jesus has a warning for us. Uh, But before we talk about that, I want to ask you a question. If someone refers to you as religious, how does that make you feel? Do you take it as a compliment or is that an insult to you if someone calls you religious? Well, it probably depends, right? It depends on who says it, why they said it, what they meant by it, what they think of religion, what you think of religion and being religious. There's a lot of factors that play into this um, classification of being religious. I think as Christians, we're generally very cautious about being religious because we know um, what damage uh, the false religious life has caused both in our own lives and in people's lives around us. And generally, the church is, is looked at as being uh, religious in wrong ways. But Jesus has a teaching on what it means to, to live the religious life. And I was surprised when I really investigated his words to the disciples because I found something that surprised me about his encouragement to live the religious life. We're in Matthew chapter 6. So you can turn there now. We're picking up halfway through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And Jesus has a warning for his disciples. I'm going to read the first verse of chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says to his disciples, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus didn't simply say, Be careful to do your acts of righteousness. He didn't stop there. Nor did he simply say, Be careful to do your acts of righteousness before men. But what he did say is, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Because if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is pushing the disciples to start to ask questions about what motivates their acts of righteousness. Now Jesus, when he says acts of righteousness, we know from the examples that follow that he's really talking about the religious acts in the faith. He goes on to describe giving and prayer and fasting. And he creates a picture for us. In fact, he creates two pictures for us. The first picture that he creates is the hypocrite. He holds up a picture to the disciples and he creates a picture of the hypocrite. And the second picture he holds up is a picture of the disciple. And he puts them next to each other and... I guess he assumes that the disciples are smart enough that if he gives them two comparative pictures, they'll be able to distinguish the difference between the two. And obviously his goal is that they would live lives as true disciples. But really Jesus is is talking about the practice of religion. And when it comes to our own lives, we're afraid to be religious because religion is dangerous because it can be defined in so many different ways and it can mean so many different things to different people. But Jesus does not want us to shy away 
from their religious life. As we go through these two examples of what a hypocrite is and what a disciple is, I think it's helpful to talk about the word hypocrite. It actually comes from classical Greek, and it was a word that was used in the life of Greek drama. A hypocrite was someone who used masks in a play to be two characters, and the masks, and they would be the hypocrite. And they would have a speaking role to distinguish these two roles. In fact, even today, theater is um, symbolized by the masks of comedy and tragedy. And the word hypocrite is actually a Greek word that we've turned into something, a bigger idea. Um, But it literally means a hypocrite is someone who uses the world as their stage when they act a certain role out. And we have kind of turned that image into something negative. It still means that, right, to us, like a hypocrite is someone that uses the world as their stage, but they act out a part that's not real, at least at some level inside. That's what a hypocrite is. Jesus describes the hypocrite in detail and how they practice their religion, and then he describes the disciple and how they should be religious. And I want to caution us at the beginning because I wonder sometimes, um, is the church really full of hypocrites. I mean, a lot of people will say about the church on the outside, they'll look at the church and say, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. It's all they are. And I wonder, looking at this body and thinking about us as a church, is that what we are? Are we a group of hypocrites? And I'm challenged to think that, and I do think that we're not. I do not think that we are a group of hypocrites by nature. Um, in the way that we practice our faith here. Um, However, we are sinful. And I think the world will often look at the church, who is the body of Christ, people getting together to celebrate what God has done in their lives. And in the process, we make mistakes as sinful people. And oftentimes, even inside the church, we're very poor at how we handle um, those sinful situations in our lives. But yet, that gets deemed as hypocritical. But I want, to, I want to clarify for you that a hypocrite is not simply a sinful person. A hypocrite is someone who says they do one thing and then does another. Or to say it this way, a hypocrite is someone who does things he claims not to do. And that's different than simply being sinful. Now, they're related, and there may be a hypocrite or hypocrites among us. But I want to challenge you from the beginning in Jesus' words. The goal is not that we would all walk out of here feeling hypocrites. Now, if God identifies something in your life that's hypocritical, I hope that you have the courage to address that. But God is setting a course for the disciples' life that has much more um, joy. And, and it's, it still remains challenging enough on its own. So he holds up this test of comparison. He says, are you a hypocrite or are you a disciple? And we're going to take that test together. Are you ready for the test that Jesus offers his disciples? And as we take this test, um, I just want to encourage you that God may distinguish a few things in your life. Like I said, he may distinguish you as a hypocrite. And I don't want to minimize that possibility. But I hope for the most of us that he identifies us as disciples and followers of the way that Jesus offers And then he gives us um, 
very real and practical examples on how to be religious. So are you curious? Are you curious how to live the religious life? Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 2. Jesus is going to give us the test of religion and the practice of religion because he's going to talk about giving and praying and fasting. When we put those three ideas together, they make up religion. Almost every religion on earth holds those ideas up highly, giving, praying, and fasting. So that in itself is not enough to distinguish us as disciples of Christ. And because of that, I think we're afraid to, to allow our religious life to be identified by giving and praying and fasting. Let's see what Jesus says. He says in verse 2, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give, give to the needy. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, giving is an act of mercy. When we give, we extend mercy to those around us. We either give financially or we give of our time or our resources to help someone. But the irony of the hypocrite is that when he gives, which is something that should extend the mercy of God, he's actually stealing from God. The King James in verse 2, it says, where it talks about him wanting to be seen by men, uh, the King James talks about that we, we desire the glory of men. The hypocrite desires the glory of men, while the disciple, the follower of Christ, uh, desires something different. Now, I think for those of us who are followers of Christ, we know not to sound the trumpet when we give, right? There's a phrase, not to toot your own horn. We're pretty good at that. We're pretty good at not tooting our own horn. But what Jesus identifies in the disciples is actually something deeper. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I think of this, uh, what I'm going to call the personal high five. I think what God is saying is don't give yourself a personal high five like this. Don't personal high-five yourself. That's even awkward for me to do in front of you. But what I think Jesus is saying, in the innermost place of your heart, when you come to give and you extend mercy and and do this act of giving, don't even let any inner um, self-congratulation be be there in your heart. Because what that is, I think as Christians, and, and I'm not saying this is easy, because I think when we give, we need to continuously evaluate our hearts. But I think when we give, there's this inner thing that happens in our hearts where we give ourselves a personal high five. And I think there's a brief time where we wrestle with giving God the glory or, or kind of tasting a little bit of the glory for ourselves and then sending it on to him. Because we know ultimately he gets the glory. But this is a challenging thing. But to the, to the disciple, Jesus says the secret of the disciple is that he gives secretly so that the Father may receive the glory. What does this practically mean? Does this mean that we should not plan our giving or tithe or 
discuss in our wives and our families how we should give. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. We have to remember that he's talking about religious behavior and the motivations of our hearts. Elsewhere in scripture, he talks about that everything that we have is from him and everything that we have is from God. And we are called to invest in the kingdom of God and be good stewards of what he's given us. So I think in the planning and the preparation of giving, that may include an inner conversation with ourselves and with our families. But when it comes to the act of giving, when it comes to the act of extending mercy because of what God has given us, it's there that we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We have this inner secrecy which allows us to give and then to move on and to allow God to be glorified in the process. With each example, I have a a question for you. And the question is right from the text because I believe Jesus' words here are so practical that he actually wants us to practice them. So for you as the disciple, when it comes to giving, is there any hint of inner secrecy in your giving and the way that you give? Let's look at the next example, prayer, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. One of the purposes of prayer is that it's a tool for us to communicate with God. And ultimately, it's one of the things that we use in our religious life to actually connect and find God. The irony of the hypocrite is that he uses prayer, which is a tool to find God, but he uses it in a way to be found by men. And um, his desire is to be seen both in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets by man when he prays. But the secret of the disciple is that he goes into an unseen place in a closed room with a closed door And he prays to his father who is in heaven, who is unseen, and he finds him in secret. Now, there's a lot of mystery to Jesus' words here. But if we keep in mind that he's questioning us about the motivations of our hearts, I think it's helpful. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reading uh, My Utmost for His Highest, which is a devotional by Oswald Chambers. It's really famous, and I'm sure that you've read it here and there. And I read it from time to time. On August 23rd, uh, the passage is talking about this very verse. And Oswald Chambers said this. He says, After we have entered our secret place and have shut the door, the most difficult thing to do is to pray. And he goes on to describe the challenge of finding God in the secret place and the discipline that's required to do that. I think God anticipated this, and in particular, Jesus anticipated this in the practice of religion because he goes into a second layer, a deeper layer of prayer. Listen to what he says in verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Another purpose of prayer is to not only find God, but actually have a relationship with him. In prayer, there should be some exchange between us and the Father. And that's what Jesus is highlighting here for his disciples. The irony of the hypocrite is that he uses prayer, something as a means to find God, but he's not willing to offer anything significant to God. It says that he babbles on and on, hoping to be heard. The real meaning of that is that he only offers empty phrases to God in the hopes that possibly God might hear him or that others might hear him. But empty phrases uh, is not what God is wanting us to bring to him. He says, my Father in heaven already knows all that you need, so this is the way that you should pray. And I love to look at the Lord's Prayer in context here and compare it to the picture of the hypocrite with the picture of the disciple or the picture of the pagan in the world with the picture of the disciple. Because Jesus pins the Lord's Prayer against something that's empty. And he says, don't make an empty offering to the Lord with empty phrases and babbling, hoping that the Lord will hear you. Instead, come to him with something simple, something honest, with real content. And, the, and this teaching is enforced because not only does he say, your Father in heaven knows everything that you need, but he also says, if you are unable to forgive the sin around you that's been done to you, how can you expect your Father in heaven to forgive you your sins? What Jesus is recognizing is that the disciple in his life of religion, in his religious life, needs to come to the Father honestly and simply. And there needs to be a real exchange in the context of prayer. The last example is the most challenging one probably for us because we probably have the least experience with it. This idea of fasting. Let's look at verse 16. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting is a way that we give up eating so that we can rely on God in a different way. It's actually physically giving up food so that we can rely on God both spiritually but also physically in a real way. Um, the word breakfast talks about breaking our fast. And fasting is something that we probably, uh, as Christians, even have a limited experience with because um, in the practice of our religion, in our act of being religious, many of us are kind of afraid to endeavor into the idea of fasting. 
But Jesus here does not uh, deter his disciples from fasting. And this is what he says. He says, when you fast, uh, do it secretly before your Father in heaven. I want to share with you something confessional um, about my preparation for this sermon. I thought in the preparation of this sermon, it would be good for me to fast in secret before the Father. And I, I even hesitate to tell you about this because it, it kind of breaks the rules of, of what Jesus describes for his disciples. But I want to tell you about it because I believe that Jesus' words are so true, but they're not necessarily easy to be lived in our lives. And they still require a huge amount of reliance on the Spirit of God and on the gift of, of salvation that we have in Christ. These acts of religion and the religious life is not something that we do before God, but it, it becomes something of who we are. So I fasted um, several times just in the preparation for the sermon. And I, I have to be honest with you. I, I, sh- I didn't share it with Libby and, and um, I didn't tell any of my Christian brothers about it. Um, I just did it between me and the Lord, and it was really challenging for me to fast before the Lord in the preparation of of this teaching. And um, I think one of the hardest things was uh, realizing that I don't rely on God as much as I think I do. And um, fasting for me has, has always been a good thing in my life. I remember in high school, fasting with some of my friends in high school and that being very formative in my Christian development. And then I remember in seminary, um, we would fast with our small groups, and we would fast as a class. And these were very meaningful spiritual experiences. And as a church, we fasted several times. We fasted as a church in the last few years. I fasted with group of, groups of men in this church when we've seen something hard before us, whether it be sickness, someone's sickness, or just a difficult situation that we're in. And all those times have been great. I mean, if you give me a, a list, a sign-up list in the foyer to sign up to fast. I'm going to do it, and it's going to be awesome. But what I realized here is that fasting, even when we do it as a community, so there's biblical reasons that we fast together as a community. God calls us as a church at certain times in the life of the church to fast before him and to cry out. But even when we do that, it's still before the Father in heaven, and it's not to be seen by men. So the secret of the disciple is that When he fasts, he actually depends on God. And for you, is fasting a way you've learned to depend on God? Now, together, these pictures of giving, prayer, and fasting, they create two pictures, one of a hypocrite or a pagan and the other of a disciple. And I wonder, like, what is Jesus really trying to do here? What What is the essence of what he's trying to teach I think what he's saying to his disciples is that if you want to follow me, the religion that I'm calling you to doesn't look like the religion that you're usually uh, seeing performed in front of you. This religion is one that's practiced in secret before the Father who is unseen. In fact, I think uh, a definition of religion that would be interesting to think about is this very definition that religion and being religious ultimately is the invisible practice of righteousness before an invisible God. That's not necessarily a complete definition of religion, but in its essence, I think the most important thing about the religious life is that it's lived invisibly before 
an invisible, unseen God. Or to say it another way that's maybe more helpful and more practical, religion, now listen to me here, religion is the secret practice of righteousness before an unseen Father. So often we want God to be visible. We cry out, God, if you would just show us yourself, that would be enough for us. But God's desire is that we would allow our religious life to be um, rooted in the invisible nature of, of finding him in secret. If I could summarize the hypocrite, it would be this way. Um, the hypocrite does not know God as his heavenly father. In this passage, ten times, Jesus uses the phrase, your father in heaven, or your father. God is your father. But the hypocrite, when he gives and when he prays and when he fasts, he's insecure before his father in heaven. And because of that insecurity, he has to find security in other things, namely in the approval of man. So when he gives, he sounds the trumpet. And when he prays, he prays to be seen. And he goes on and on with something that's empty. And when he fasts, he disfigures his face so that men will realize what he's doing. And all along, he's depending on man. But the disciple is different. The disciple realizes um, that his religious activity In its essence, it has to be rooted in something invisible. And I think that's true for each one of us today. Our Christianity and our following of Jesus, if if all it is is the gathering here, and you know, so when the hurricane comes and we miss a Sunday, if your if your walk with Jesus and your faith in him and your faith in God as the Father in heaven, if that kind of there's a big break in that because of that week off, um, that could be an indicator that you're not living your religious life before the Father like he desires you to. But the disciple, um, his religious practice at some level is in private and in secret. And God all along, he remains invisible to us. Even now, God the Father is invisible. Timothy talks about how the Father is in unapproachable light. We are unable to even approach him But we are allowed to um, behold the glory of God the Father. And in fact, in Christ, Jesus Christ, um, the incarnate Son of God, he becomes the incarnation of the Father in whom we're allowed to behold the glory of the Father uh, most clearly. So in John chapter 14, Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. But in this early stage on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling his disciples, it's going to get hard. Your your discipleship and your following of me is going to become very difficult. And if this is just a religious thing that you're doing that's to be seen by men, um, you might as well stop now because uh, without the invisible religion that I'm calling you to and the invisible religious practice that I desire for you to have, uh, you're going to be unable to follow me like I'm calling you to follow me. And it's with that that we um, approach this table. The invisible religion underpins everything that we do visibly. Religion is more than simply us going into a closet and praying. 
there's this gathering of the church that happens. And Jesus already addressed this in Matthew chapter 5. If you turn back just a few verses in his same sermon, which takes us weeks to preach. But if you remember, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling the church that they're a city on the hill. And when he says that in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before men. Let your light shine before men so that they what? May see your good deeds and then what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus almost says the same exact sentence. He says, when you do your acts of righteousness or your good deeds before men, on the one hand, he gives you a warning about it. But when it comes to the church and being a city on a hill, he encourages us. What he's doing, he's attacking two different motivations there. He's not contradicting himself. But what he is saying is that everything that we do visibly here is the church that can be seen has to be underpinned by the invisible religion. And that's what I want to encourage you about this today. Um, again, if, if everyone walks out of here feeling like the hypocrite, I think that is the wrong teaching that we should hear. However, there may be someone in here that is using their faith and their Christianity as a stage. And this test of comparison is only one that you can take before God and before his son, Jesus Christ. So if he is dealing with you at that level, I just encourage you to explore your insecurity before the Father. And if you, if you recognize as a disciple that you are insecure before the Father except without Christ, then I would say you are a disciple of his. And we can approach this table and we can approach the Father in confidence because of, of what Christ has done. So my encouragement to the disciple is to make sure that everything that you do visibly is underpinned by an invisible religion, which is practiced invisibly in a secret and private way, and that's done before an unseen father. But Jesus said this. He said to his disciples, when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Is there any hint of inner secrecy in your giving? When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Is secrecy or privacy before the Father, is that something that defines your prayer life. And when you pray, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Is your prayer life marked by simple, honest content? And is there any real exchange between you and the Father in your prayer life? Jesus said, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Is fasting a way you've depended on God in secret? 